Well, welcome back to the book of Daniel uh, one last time. Uh, Today marks the last sermon of our series and a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I mean that for our series, but I also mean that in regard to the content of this last chapter. Uh, This last chapter deals with the end of time. On the whole, you can think of the book of Daniel in two separate parts. Chapters 1 through 6 described for us, you remember, the narrative of Daniel's life. And we learned in that narrative that God is absolutely sovereign over each and every one of those events. Then chapters 7 through 12 zoom way out and show us the spiritual realities behind the events of chapters 1 through 6 and of future events in history. We've been reminded again and again and again that God isn't impersonal. He's all-knowing, even into the future. And he's personally involved in seeing his purposes come to pass. But in these last several chapters, we've seen some gruesome truths, haven't we? Dark truths for the future of God's people, right? We've seen a lowercase a antichrist who have and will persecute the faithful. We've seen a capital A antichrist who will persecute the church in the future. Are things going to get better? From this section of Daniel, it doesn't appear so. From Daniel's vision, it's going to seem like darkness is winning. We've got that to look forward to. Yay! But I want to remind us this morning of two truths. First, God is sovereign, and he has a plan and a purpose for all that he does. Even when the events of history seem to be spinning out of control, God is never out of control. He knows what he's doing. Second, I want to remind us of the three words from 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding section, right? What does Paul encourage God's people toward? Faith, hope, and love, right? It's that middle word that I want to remind us of this morning, hope. If Daniel ended at the end of chapter 11, We might be left with quite the grim outlook. But as the saying goes, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. In fact, Corey Ten Boom once said this. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. If Daniel chapter 10 and 11 were a dark tunnel, chapter 12 is meant to give God's people hope and direction for living now in light of God's promises for the end of time. He's an engineer that you can trust. So let's dive into the text. Chapter 12 breaks down into two distinct parts. Verses 1 through 4 finish off the vision that was started all the way back in chapter 10. And then verses 5 through 13 deal with questions about the end. 
Look with me at verses 1 through 4. Point one of our sermon today is hope for God's people. Hope for God's people. Again, after all of the darkness that's been foretold in Daniel's vision, we're reminded here that God comforts his people in the midst of trial. I hope that you've seen this repetitively in the book of Daniel. God never promises that his people won't have trials. Daniel certainly had trials. We certainly will have trials. God's people throughout history have been through trials. God doesn't promise us that we won't have trials. But what God does promise is that he'll comfort his people in the midst of trials. He uses trials for his purposes. He promises his presence in the midst of trial. Look at verse 1. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in that book. You see that the beauty and the hope in this verse just a summary of chapters 7 through 11. Really simple. It's going to get dark. We're even reminded here that there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation. It's going to be bad. But you won't be alone. Michael, the great prince, has charge of your people. Who's Michael? First of all, his name means who is like God. So even his name reminds us of God's uniqueness and power. But we also see Michael the archangel in Jude 9, which says this. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So what's Michael doing in this text? He's defending God's people. He's protecting the body of Moses from evil forces, the devil himself. He acts as a representative of God in protecting his loved ones. He's the guardian of God's people until the resurrection. We're told again about Michael in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. It says this. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Again, Michael's going to war with evil on behalf of God's people and God's cause. Christians, does this bring you hope? In the midst of darkness and evil, it should. God isn't an impersonal God. He's personally involved in his world. Now, there's a worldview known as deism. Any of you know about deism? 
deists believe that God is a clockmaker God who designed this world, kind of wound it all up, and then just steps out of the picture and lets it run how it's going to. In the face of evil, that'd be terrifying. God may be all-powerful, but if he's not involved, it doesn't matter. He doesn't have a dog in the fight. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is intimately involved in his creation and on behalf of his people. He cares about you. He's regularly involved in your day-to-day life. Daniel has just had several visions of the spiritual realm and how it influences history from the side of evil. But here, he's reminded that Michael, the guardian of God's people, won't be asleep at the wheel. And look at what Daniel has promised. It says, But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. What's this book? The book of life. Also called the Lamb's book of life. It's a record of the redeemed. Those who have repented and believed in Jesus. It's a ledger of those, in the words of Romans 8, who were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Those are the ones who will be delivered at that time. Now, Christians, cement that truth deep in your minds and hearts. It doesn't matter how much trial you experience here on this earth. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, you will be delivered. Your name is written, not in pencil or in erasable ink, but in stone in the Lamb's book of life. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. There's so much darkness in our world. So much more darkness yet to come. But we have a warrior who's protecting us and a promise of deliverance. There's hope. But it gets even more specific. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. So we're promised a representative protector, and now we're promised resurrection. You may have thought that resurrection was only a New Testament thing. Not so. Do you see it there in verse 2? And it's important for us to understand how this word many is being used here. Instead of thinking of many as kind of a subset of 100%, think of many as a great multitude, a vast number, which no one can number. How many? Many. A lot. 
So remember the context here. Daniel and his friends probably often felt alone and like they were the only ones remaining faithful to God. You may feel like that too at times. But here, Daniel is reminded that at the end of time, he won't be alone in the resurrection. There will be many. And what will happen at this moment? Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's only two locations, life or shame and contempt. Understand this. In our world, we don't like binaries. We think, yeah, there's righteous or good people, and then there's obvious evil people like Hitler or Stalin. But there's a lot of people who really aren't too bad. They're basically okay. That's not the biblical worldview. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34 and verse 41. Jesus says, When the Son of Man, referring to himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared from the devil, for the devil and his angels. So there are sheep, goats. And here's the reality. According to Romans chapter 3, on our own, we're all goats. Every single one of us. Romans 3 verses 10 through 18, this is stark. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. According to both Matthew 25 and our text here in Daniel, where do goats or the unrighteous end up? Eternal fire. Shame. Everlasting contempt. Did you catch those words? Eternal. Everlasting. Note this well. 
There are those both outside and inside the church who don't believe that these texts are true. They believe in what's called annihilationism. It's the belief that when we die, we simply cease to exist. Some inside the church believe that when a Christian dies, they have eternal life. But when a non-Christian dies, they cease to exist. They're annihilated. That's not what either of these texts teach. At the end of days, everyone will be resurrected. Everyone. The sheep to eternal life. And the goats to shame and everlasting contempt. So, if Romans 3 is correct, and it is, and we are all goats by nature, how in the world is anyone resurrected to eternal life? Only through the righteousness of Christ. Hear this clearly. Clearly this morning. If you hear nothing else I say all morning, focus in here. Jesus lived perfectly in every single way. He was completely righteous. When it comes to sheep and goats, he was the perfect sheep. He came to this earth living that life on our behalf. Then he was slaughtered. He was nailed to a cross, paying the penalty that each of us goats deserve. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid those wages. Not because of his own debt, but because of ours. He absorbed the full amount of God's wrath, thus fulfilling God's justice was buried. And three days later, he rose from the grave. Here's the deal. Everyone who, who turns from their sin and trust in everything that I just shared about Jesus, they're declared righteous. They're declared to be sheep. Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to Christians. And we, from the dust, will awake to everlasting life. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we will too. That's something that we don't just get to celebrate next weekend on Easter. We get to celebrate that every day of our lives. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the gospel. Again, you see how much hope is here. Now, on the somber side of things, we noticed that for the unrepentant, that damnation is eternal. But for Christians, for those clothed in the righteousness of Christ, salvation is eternal. If you're facing trials, Persecution. Even the worst that can be thrown at you, death itself, you'll be resurrected. 
forever. There's hope there. This life is so short. It's momentary. It's a breath that's fleeting. But then, eternal glory. Now look at how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the kind of hope that'll get you through anything, brothers and sisters. Present hardships or the knowledge that the future will get harder for God's people. We're never victims. Even in the midst of real oppression and real trial, we cling to the doctrine of God's providence, knowing that he's doing something in us and through us. Every trial is meant for our blessing and for God's glory. So in the midst of trial, God promises a protector. and He promises resurrection to eternal life. Then, look at verse 3. It says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I'm going to be brief here and simply say that God promises to bless the faithful who turn many to righteousness. They'll reflect God's glory and be changed into Christ's likeness. There's more promises there and more hope for God's people. Again, if you were certain that your trials glorified God, Shining his light, if you were certain of that, wouldn't that change your outlook? That's what's being said here. In trials, those who remain faithful and turn others to righteousness, they shine God's glory even brighter. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. Now, in verse 4, Daniel's told to... Shut up the words and seal the book. What's being said here is that all of these promises that have been given, all of this hope is to be preserved. When it came to writing things on papyrus rolls, often two copies were made. One to read, and then one that was sealed up, kept safe. Think of like a, a backup computer drive. If your computer crashes, you've still got your files, right? That's what's being said to Daniel here. Keep these words safe until the end. Shut them up, seal them. People will be running around everywhere. And their knowledge will certainly increase. But this, this is what matters. 
Keep it safe. Preserve it. Isn't God kind to us? He cares. He's concerned that we receive this message of hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel, Santa Cruz Baptist. There's hope even in the darkest of days. Now, what we're doing here is called eschatology. The study of the end times. But I've got a question for us. How does eschatology affect Monday morning? How does studying the end times, knowing what's going to happen, how does that affect when you walk out of this room today? Many commentators note that Daniel 12 is about what's called an eschatological ethic. Ligon Duncan calls it practical instruction for Christian living in light of our future hope. He goes on to say this. He says, our ethic, how we live, our ethic is impacted. It's informed by the promises that God has made to us about the future. It's not just that we're supposed to know these neat things that are going to happen one day at the end. It's that our lives will be transformed and changed and helped and encouraged and strengthened now because of what God is going to do then certainly for us. You see what he's saying there? What we understand about the future has impact on our present. It changes how we live today. We live life now in terms of future promises. We know that God has a plan. That he's sovereign over that plan. That he's personally involved in his world. And that he wins in the end. So whatever's thrown at you this week, you're meant to view it through those lenses. God powerfully and graciously comforts his people in the midst of trials. And immediately upon the heels of these hope-filled promises, we see Daniel's final vision. Point two, questions and instructions for life. Look with me at verses five and six. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? So picture this. We've got two angels. One on one side of the river, one on the other. Then you've got a third figure. The man clothed in linen. Who seems to be the pre-incarnate Christ. He's above the waters of the stream. And what do they ask him? Probably a question that you've asked a time or two during a sermon. How long till the end? All kidding aside, isn't this interesting? The angels don't know the answer to this question. 
I ask the question that many of us have. How long, O Lord? Look at how Jesus answers the question in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. In reference to the day of his return, Jesus says this. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Do you see how silly it is to take Daniel, or the book of Revelation for that matter, in one hand, and a calculator in the other, and try to figure out the exact time of Christ's return? That's not the point. But again, it's comforting to know that even these angels care. They're concerned for God's people and how long they'll have to go through tribulation. They're not asking, when is this going to happen? But they're concerned for how long? Well, how does the man in linen respond? Verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So we have presumably the pre-incarnate Christ here. And he's not just raising his right hand, as you would take an oath in court. He solemnly raises both hands. He takes an oath before the God and Father, the Ancient of Days that we've heard about in Daniel. And in answer to the angel's question of how long, he says, a time, times, half a time. Again, we can try to get out our calculators here and figure out the exact date that's predicted, but I don't think that's what God intends. We've seen this kind of language before in Daniel chapter 9, with the 70 weeks and the half week. More specifically, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Speaking of the little horn, it says, he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to charge the times and the law, or change the, the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, here it is, for a time, times, and half a time. You see the parallel to what's being said here in Daniel chapter 12. The saints, God's people, are going to be persecuted. They're going to have their power shattered. But, at the end of the day, here's what I believe the man in linen is communicating in the midst of that. When the, the powers of darkness have done their worst, God's going to act definitively. We don't need to know what time, times, and half a time represents on the calendar. But what we do need to know is that evil won't be allowed to triumph forever. God is in control of the events of history definitively. 
He knows the exact time when he'll put an end to it all. He'll intervene at a specific time in history that he already knows. It's set in stone. It reminds me of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus into the world. It was at the perfect time in history. In the same way, in the perfect time in history, Jesus will come again and put an end to the tribulation of his people. Our hope. So, in light of the hard things ahead, know again that God is sovereignly in control. And he won't let evil reign a second longer than he purposes. What's Daniel's response to this? Look at verse 8. This is so encouraging. He says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Again, maybe you've had this same reaction as we've preached through the vision sections of Daniel. I heard, but I did not understand. You're in good company. It's kind of like when Peter is talking about Paul's letters. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And then Peter says this about Paul. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Two quick points here. While there are some hard things to understand in the Bible, Daniel being one of them, we believe in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture. That's just an old fancy word, meaning that we believe the Bible is clear. (laughs) The Westminster Confession of Faith is actually really helpful on this doctrine. And it says this. I've got this up on the screen for you. It says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Do you follow that? It's saying there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. But the main things we need to know, believe, and do for salvation can be seen clearly in the Bible. Further, the truths necessary for salvation are crystal clear in Scripture, even to the uneducated. 
In other words, our salvation doesn't hang on knowing what time, times, and half a time means. Praise God for that. Or in completely understanding Daniel's visions. Second, alongside knowing that we believe the Bible's clear, beware of people that claim with certainty to understand all of the details of Daniel's vision here. He doesn't. Again, if we're reading Daniel in one hand with our calculator and calendar in the other, we're doing it wrong. God is teaching us a grand vision with big picture truths here. He's not giving us precise dates, even though those precise dates exist and God knows them. So, like the angels... Daniel asks a question. What will be the outcome of these things? And what's the man in linen's response? Verses 9 through 13. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. What a response. Daniel asks for some specifics, and the response is essentially, keep living your life. Go your way, Daniel. The words are preserved. These things are going to happen. So live your life. That reminds me of a story I heard about Martin Luther. He was once asked, if you knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do today? His answer? I'd plant a tree. That's such a Luther statement. <laughs> Essentially what he's saying is, I keep living my life faithfully. That's the man in linen's counsel to Daniel and to us this morning. Know that Things are going to get bad. Know that there's light at the end of the tunnel with hope. Know that God is definitively in control of the timeline, even down to the specific listing of days in verses 11 and 12. Know all of that. And keep living your life faithfully, obeying God's commands. That's what we've seen Daniel do from the beginning of this book. Further, verse 10 reminds Daniel and us of the importance of pursuing holiness. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. Funny, huh? When the end is coming, don't go build a bunker. Pursue holiness. The wicked are going to keep doing their thing, acting wickedly. No surprise there. 
you pursue holiness. That's our calling. Keep living faithfully. Live a life that's pleasing to God. In closing, and to close out our series through the book of Daniel, that's the main message. We live in Babylon. We live in a home that's not our own. God is sovereign in that. And he's so faithful to us. How then should we live? Faithfully. Lives that trust God fully. Even in moments of persecution and trial. Live lives of holiness. Obeying God's commands, even when the consequence is being thrown into the fire or fed to lions. Do not fear. God will never leave you or forsake you. He sees you. He's with you. He's sovereignly in control of every molecule in this universe. And he's working all of this for your good and his glory. Let's pray.